You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lal, and I'm joined by Stuart Sherman, who's the CEO of IMC. And IMC is actually a Toronto-based company that's focused on artificial intelligence, and their client list includes several of the major banks, the, the telcos, consumer product companies, insurance companies, health and pharma companies as well. And what's very interesting about their organization is they're a lead partner with IBM for Watson uh, in Canada and having worked on Watson since it actually launched. So, first of all, thank you very much for joining us, Stuart. Oh, really a pleasure. Thank you. So I think maybe this is a good place to start. Maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about what Watson is uh, as it relates to IBM and give everyone kind of an introduction to, to what you're doing. Absolutely, and a pleasure. Um, I, I think one of the problems is that people people hear Watson and they think of one thing. Like, uh, and and obviously people are some people are afraid of uh, of, of Skynet and uh, and artificial intelligence taking over the world. And so when I speak to people who are kind of uninitiated, they generally say, "Well, isn't Watson going to take over the world?" And the answer is that Watson actually isn't a single product. It's a whole series of products that I would actually describe more like Lego blocks, where uh, they're all different bits and pieces that you can then assemble into a car, a boat, a plane. Uh, so it, it's not one single solution. And therefore, uh, it involves things like, for example, uh, there's a, uh, a computer vision component to watch. So it's a whole bunch of building blocks around allowing a computer to uh, and quite literally, quote, unquote, see. So that would be to actually look at something like an image, uh, for example, a photograph, and say it's a woman on a beach. So it's computer vision is the ability to analyze uh, an image and pull bits out of that image. And that's an aspect of Watson. Other aspects of Watson involve uh, handling and managing unstructured data. So unstructured data could be something like a newspaper where it's not in a table like Excel or something like that. It's just uh, a whole bunch of information, a scientific paper or something like that, and being able to pull information out of that unstructured data and make it structured. So Watson really is a, a, is a broad toolkit of building blocks that you then assemble into a total solution. So you might, for example, uh, do something that would read the article and the images in the article and get some sort of impression based on the two. Got it. Great. So let's now go back to the 10,000-foot view. Uh, there's, there's a ton of press around artificial intelligence as well as machine learning, uh, and I find that a lot of times those two terms end up getting used interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same. So maybe we can start by explaining uh, the difference between the two. Absolutely. And and the funny thing here is that you could actually ask four or five different people and they may have four or five different impressions of that as well. And one of the reasons is that this is all brand new. And so one of the things that we found is that uh, there's a lot of stuff that's called artificial intelligence that really isn't. Uh, and machine learning really, if, if we wanted to talk about it, artificial intelligence is almost like a classification, like saying primates. Uh, and machine learning is almost a subclass within that, like baboon, in the sense that uh, machine learning is really when you take a computer 
and you train it uh, using some sort of machine learning toolkit. There's software packages you can get, which are things like TensorFlow and, uh, and various others that do machine learning. And essentially what, what that is, is it's analyzing a data set to find patterns. So uh, when you're doing that, there is an aspect of intelligence to that. I think that one could argue, and therefore machine learning and artificial intelligence are sometimes lumped together because of that. But artificial intelligence truly is when the computer is making decisions on its own. Uh, so, for example, uh, you may have heard of the, uh, the computer that Google trained how to play Go. Uh, it used a whole bunch of uh, machine learning to go through all the different combinations of permutations that you could possibly have to play the game of Go. But then when it's playing against a human, it's actually using what I would consider artificial intelligence because it's actually processing fresh data and making decisions on that based on a corpus of data that it has machine learned. So, so in terms of big data, how has that really changed or evolved over the last 10 years? Well, I think that even the concept of big data has changed over the last 10 years. I think that one of the things that is one of the strange things as, as we talk about it, and, and one of the things that I like talking about a lot, is that the iPad itself is only six and a half years old now. Most people are shocked when I say that, because I say, guess how old the iPad is? And they go, oh, 10 years, 15 years. So yeah. the speed of technology and the evolution of technology is so fast. So 10 years ago, uh, there, people were doing some data analytics, there's no question. Uh, data analytics was mostly being used in areas uh, that were that related to marketing and uh, and you know better understanding customer behavior and things like that. There was data analytics done on other stuff like in Formula One and uh, and all sorts of uh, kind of edge uh, edge cases where uh, where there were lots of data built. But one of the things that's happened is the speed of the increase in the collection of data is exponential. There's, a, there's virtually a Moore's Law around it. So uh, I was literally just meeting with a senior person from Apple for lunch today, and we were talking about the fact that the, uh, the 787, by the time it, it lands, like I fly regularly to the U.K., and by the time we take off in Toronto and we land in the U.K., it's collected terabytes of data on the flight. Hmm. And so uh, we have a project with Rolls-Royce looking at aircraft engines, and we're looking at the wear and tear on the engine and how the engine performed in flight and all of those related things. Well, 10 years ago, that data wasn't being collected. So if you look at a 10-year-old aircraft, it didn't have terabytes worth of storage space to hold all the in-flight telemetry. And therefore, the data wasn't even being considered. Is this kind of the new black box that planes have today? Does this effectively replace that? I mean, I know that they probably still have them uh, on the planes, but Correct. I'm just curious. Well, so it, it's not – so if we take a look at what black boxes do, um, what I would say is that we're starting to come up with black box thinking for things that don't have black boxes. So uh, the, the plane analogy is perfect for this. The, the black box's purpose is to figure out what happened to the plane before it crashed. Yeah. Um, that's great if the plane crashes, which kind of sucks for everybody on the plane. 
But the, the question is, how do you improve the flight if the plane doesn't crash? So this isn't replacing the black box. What it's doing is it's gathering data that the black box is gathering plus, plus, plus. Right. And when you add all that extra data up, you can now start to analyze it. And this is where the big data really matters, because as you can start analyzing it, you start getting insights into things that we don't really understand. I think when, when you think about this, uh, you, you need to think about human psychology. And there's, there's a concept in human psychology called heuristics. It's part of the behavioral economics, uh, and people who are interested in this should read about uh, Dan Kahneman. Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is one of the key books for this. Um, but the, the, the concept of heuristics is that there are mental shortcuts that we apply. So one of the mental shortcuts that we apply as humans is the concept of availability. So I like to illustrate this with sharks versus mosquitoes, where we're actually far more afraid of sharks. Sharks actually have their own theme music, and we're not very afraid of mosquitoes. You don't mind sitting out in your backyard, and if there's a couple bugs, you just swat them away. Um, but actually, if you look at the big data, uh, the World Health Organization says that on average, three to four people a year are killed by sharks, and three-quarters of a million people a year are killed by mosquitoes. Yeah. So as we start being able to collect and crunch data at higher and higher rates, our ability to understand the world around us and the, the interconnectedness of things is, is increased dramatically. And I think that this is what we've, what we've discovered over the last 10 years. And so now there's models for everything. So like what we've heard of with Cambridge Analytica and the Facebook scandal, they, they were analyzing people's opinions as it related to where in the country they lived to figure out where Trump or Brexit uh, should have been pushed. Uh, that kind of data analysis 10 years ago would just be unheard of. And so I think that 10 years from now, it's going to be standard. That's a good segue as well into, you know, taking a look at um, how AI also has gotten intertwined into the cars or is going to be more intertwined into the automobile as well as cybersecurity because, you know, you're talking about connectivity and you know, we see lots of reports and some people think it's a low number, but in the next couple of years we'll have 20 billion devices uh, connected uh, in the world, uh, which, is a, which is an astronomical number. I mean, that's what, that's mm -hmm. three per person uh, effectively. So with all of this uh, interconnectivity, let's talk about how AI is kind of intertwining with automotive and, and, and cybersecurity. Well, so let's do automotive first and, and cybersecurity second. Um, in, in the context, and, and they actually interrelate as well because uh, I, uh, people may or may not know, but it was actually a couple of years ago that some hackers were actually able to hack a Jeep that was driving down the road and cause it to shut down and open and close the windows and, and change the, uh, the, the air conditioning to heating and all sorts of stuff. So, yes, this stuff all does interrelate. There's no question. Um, but when, when we talk about it in terms of automotive, one of the things, and this is a, this is a project that we're, that we're working on right now, um, we have a division of our business that, uh, that specializes in large-scale simulations. And the, the challenge that exists right now is that your insurance company knows your driving history, and they know uh, based on your claims history uh, how much you should be paying for insurance based on your claims history, where you live, where you drive, all of those different things. That's all big data analysis that they've done. And insurance is one of the early places where big data analysis happened. What they don't know is 
how the Tesla autopilot compares with the uh, with the Mercedes uh, autonomous vehicle, how that compares with the Uber autonomous vehicle. And then the next questions start to come in on, uh, well, would this autonomous vehicle that uses LIDAR, which is a form of laser, uh, work well in the fog? Because fog is, is water molecules that tend to reflect laser beams. So what happens if an old lady is crossing the road in front of an autonomous car that's using this brand of LIDAR and running this version of software? Because it's a Mercedes, it's running Mercedes autonomous software. So as we start looking at this, um, there's huge implications for our society that nobody's ever really considered because we all look at it and go, well, we'll just have an autonomous car and it'll be a safer driver than I will be. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, to, to see what's been happening to the automobile. And, you know, you talked about it before how iPads have just been around for six and a half years and we forget how much technology is already getting integrated into our lives. I mean, you know, today most cars have the, you know, front and back cameras and they have the blind spot checkers and they have park assist and the deceleration. And, you know, the autonomous vehicles already slowly been getting integrated into our lives and probably will, yeah. uh, not probably, it will uh, uh, continue uh, as well. So let's, the, privacy is probably something that, you know, is also really uh, important and kind of parallels into this discussion as well. Um, mm -hmm. I've got Google Home. Uh, I love it. Um, my kids, my kids, my my kids, I think love it more than I do. Obviously, there's also Amazon Echo. Uh, two things. Number one, talk to us about privacy. Like, are they really mm -hmm. listening to us? <laughs> number one, and number well, two, how is this data being consumed? Because now this kind of goes back to data and how it's being stored and utilized. Yes, absolutely. And so my answer is kind of twofold. Uh, the what's listening to you? Because your Google Home is listening to you all the time. Uh, the question is, is it transmitting that data to Google or not? Because it's listening for you to say, okay, Google. Right. Uh, if you didn't so if you say, don't okay, say, okay, Google, Google is it still, so if you don't say, okay, Google, is it still listening to you? By what's definition, it must be because it's, it, it has to be. The, yeah. the question is, is it listening to you on the circuit board uh, and that information is not going to Google? And the answer is probably yes. Yeah. I I'm certainly don't purport to be an expert, but if I, if I was Google, it certainly wouldn't be streaming all of your conversations up to Google. But the second you say, okay, Google, it does. Yeah. And that, that data goes to Google. So then the question becomes, how secure is it? And so you now have a device in your home that is effectively a microphone that streams data to the Internet. So how easy is it for me to hack that? Because if I could, I could listen into everything you say. So this could be a case of, you know, the, the mafia uh, getting hacked by the mafia's Google device getting hacked by the FBI, and suddenly now they're listening in on all of the conversations where they hit the bodies. Well, that's actually a possibility if you have that technology in your house. So the question becomes, and, and this is really the question for consumers, and we've seen this with Facebook, we've seen this with, uh, with Equifax and with Sony Pictures, and there's so many examples of this data getting hacked because if it exists and it's being collected and it was created by a human, there is the opportunity for a human to get access to it. 
Right. And this is something that we're not putting enough thought into. So one of the facts, as you were talking about the number of IoT devices, IoT being the Internet of Things, which is basically devices that you might have in your home or your car that are connected to the Internet and streaming data back. Well, one of the discoveries a few years ago was that a lot of these devices were never, never properly secured. So the, the login to the device is the default. And you don't have an opportunity even to change the password on it. So if I wanted to hack your home automation system and turn on and off your lights remotely, I may be able to do that. Now, that sounds relatively innocuous because, well, it's not innocuous, but effectively, okay, so you can turn on and off my lights. What's the worst that will happen? I'll come home and all my lights will be on. But then you look at it and say, but I just got a smart lock. So now you yeah. can unlock my doors. Like, yeah. it, it, we're, we're on this slippery slope where uh, the, the knowledge of how strong and how powerful and how easy to hack these systems are is very asymmetric. The average consumer has no idea. Yeah. And yeah. that's a problem. That's, that's a problem. It's worrisome. Well, we, we, we look for convenience and for uh, for ease of use, and you're right. I mean, with that comes repercussions. And uh, I think, you know, as people get more educated, maybe they'll, uh, they, they may not want to accelerate as fast into some of these growing technologies. Um, Absolutely. So, so before we wrap up, first of all, thank you very much, Stuart. This is very enlightening. Uh, I always ask for our podcast, you know, what are your two or three top predictions for the tech industry uh, over the course of the next five or ten years? Well, I would say that probably my number one prediction is that AI, machine learning, data crunching is uh, is going to be ubiquitous. It's going to be the standard. I remember when I when I started one of Canada's first digital agencies in 1994, and I was explaining to uh, to companies like uh, Kraft and Unilever that this was a great ability to collect information about what their customers were interested in because you could go and look at a recipe and they could figure out which recipe got the most hits and therefore which are the most popular. Um, the the ability now for Amazon to understand what products you're looking at. And, uh, and what, uh, you know, what choices you made and what purchases you made after that. That, that's pretty clear. Um, what, what I see the future will be is that this is going to start going downstream where, uh, things like your car is going to start to understand how you use it. And that information will go back to the car manufacturer who will be interested in how to better optimize their vehicles. And, so I, I would say that the, the future of all of this stuff will be more towards customization based on data collected. So, what, so along those lines, what do you think is going to be the biggest disruptor for us from a daily life perspective in, from, mm. as, as it relates to technology? It, it's very interesting. I would actually say that it, it's, it's something that uh, – it's, it's an umbrella thing. And what, yeah. what it is is 5G. So right now, uh, your phone and my phone all operate on 4G networks, which is, uh, you know, you've, you've noticed that your Internet speed is way faster, uh, which means that you're using your phone more and you're out for dinner with friends and somebody says, oh, well, what about and you Google it. And so it, it is, it's changed the way we as humans interact with the world because we suddenly are carrying around the largest library and the ability to ask any question and get any answer virtually at the dinner table. 
Right. Um, 5G networks are going to be that much faster. They, they involve a different kind of interconnectedness that's better. And what we're going to see now is devices that will be able to cooperate. We're going to see all sorts of things that will exploit it. Uh, I bet you, and, and I've done this a number of times where I've asked people, do you remember life before Wi-Fi? And a lot of people have to actually think about that for a minute. Oh, I remember the sound of dial-up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and so when, when you start looking at it in that context, like nowadays, if you went to a hotel and you checked in and they didn't have Wi-Fi, yeah. you, you would wonder that they're in the dark ages. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, now we're demanding it in restaurants and public spaces and things like that. We're demanding levels of connectivity. Well, 5G is going to increase that level of connectivity, and then it's going to increase the ability for connected devices to talk to each other. So I think that all of the future that we're going to see is going to be based on the evolution of the, the newest platforms for that. So I couldn't be a futurist and tell you that it's going to be, you know, the iPhone 18 is going to change the world. Yeah. But what I would definitely tell you is that once you have uh, uh, these these new networks, you're going to have the possibility of having a, you know, you're going to get in your autonomous car, for example, and it's going to be driving down the highway in the form of a train where it's going to be communicating with the car in front and behind of it. They're going to be drafting each other. They're going to be getting way better gas mileage. They're going to be managing traffic. You're not going to have any slowdowns or speed ups. Like that will be the massive change and that will change transportation as we know it. And I think we're going to see that with a lot of different kinds of things. Yeah, I've heard a lot of futurists, futurists talk, and they, they I, I think it's a little parallel to what you just said. A lot of people feel that the biggest disruptor uh, of our of our uh, uh, lifetime will most likely be the autonomous vehicle and the connectivity mm-hmm. that it's going to create. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Thank you very much for your time today, Stuart. This was great. Truly a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. You have been listening to the innovators behind disruption a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.